Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And this is going to be our last core, epi- our last new core episode of the year. And what do we have for you here? Another holiday episode. And we really didn't know until um, just a few days ago exactly what the holiday episode would be. We were talking about doing an episode on reindeer-related stuff, and maybe we'll do that next year. We, and then we were talking about, well, let's, let's, we've done previous episode where we talked about holiday inventions, Christmas inventions, and so forth. Maybe we could uh, do another one of those. And... Um, uh, you know, we started looking into some topics, and we wound up focusing entirely upon the 1983 holiday film, A Christmas Story. Well, not just on the movie, on the movie's most sacred prop. That's right. I mean, for a little bit there, we were thinking, well, look at all the things there are to talk about in A Christmas Story. We could talk about soap poisoning, uh, freezing your tongue to a flagpole, the dangers posed by BB guns, how furnaces work. <laughs> I, I got to say, I, having looked into the medical literature on soap poisoning, first of all, it is a real thing. Second, that's some pretty dark territory. Not 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 the most fun way to head into the holidays. Well, I mean, it's pretty dark in A Christmas Story. You know, there he is. He's a, he's a child and he's blind and his parents feel such remorse for having him put that bar of soap in his mouth. Now, from what I could tell in my brief investigation, I don't think it's dangerous to put a bar of soap in your mouth for a few minutes, but you definitely don't want to, like, eat a significant amount of it. Right. So, so soap poisoning is a thing. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Just don't, don't swallow soap. But like you said, we're not, we're not focusing on the soap here. We're talking, we're going to be talking about um, the old man's major award. We're going to be talking about that leg lamp. Now, Rob, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I can say uh, most of my exposure to to A Christmas Story, the movie, comes in the form of a sort of running, droning background noise that's going on at a, at a some kind of family house around Christmas while it's just playing on an infinite loop on some cable TV station that, that is turned on in a room I might not even be in very much. But w- w- when this happens, I notice that so this must have something to do with like uh, the patterns with which I come and go into certain rooms in the house. So that, that would be an interesting thing to study on its own. But I will pretty frequently have the experience of seeing one scene in the movie like five times in the same day. And it's always the same scene. And for me, it has definitely been the scene where uh, the, the old man is in the house and, and a big crate arrives. And it was, we get the lines about it being fragile. And uh, <laughs> he digs through the straw and then pulls out this glorious leg lamp. Yeah, I have I have a similar experience with a, a Christmas story. Um, it would it, there were there are there have been some dedicated viewings of it, uh, you know, throughout the years. Um, but most of it, it's just it's on TV during Christmas, and therefore you watch it or you watch part of it. And so when you actually sit down and watch it in its entirety, there will be these scenes that you remember really vividly, and then there are scenes that you didn't realize were part of the movie at all. That sort of thing. I, I should probably inform everyone what this movie is. A number of you are probably familiar with it, but some of you are not. Uh, this was a 1983 holiday film that was based on the writings of Gene Shepard, particularly on the book In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. It's one boy's account of uh, childhood holiday dreams, desires, and fears. Uh, it's a fun movie with with some solid laughs in it, some, some, some good heart, but not to a sappy degree, especially for a holiday film. 
And in some ways, you could almost think of it as kind of like a a proto Simpsons, you know, like it's hmm. it, it's some of the the gags that they get up to in a Christmas story are the sorts of things that would happen on the Simpsons later on. But of course the Simpsons leans more into more into the satire and more into like pop cultural references. You know what I'm talking about? Like, can't you imagine an episode where Homer gets some sort of obnoxious award that he wants to display at the front of the house and Marge doesn't like it. And, uh, and maybe something terrible ends up happening to the award and he, he blames her. Yeah. Now that you say that, I can't imagine that being a plot line. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Ralphie is essentially a good boy. Uh, whereas Bart is, is, is a bad boy. So, uh, you know, we have to take that into account as well. Yeah, Bart would not dream of getting a BB gun for Christmas. He would just go and, I don't know, shoplift a BB gun or, or something. Yeah, oh, well, I mean, I hope he learned his lesson from that uh, that Christmas episode of The Simpsons where he did shoplift, remember? Oh, that's right. Oh, I remember that one's actually very sad because his mother is very disappointed in him. And yeah, yeah, we just hugged that the heartstrings. The yeah, yeah. It's, it's a solid episode. Like, that sort of Simpsons episode reminds me a lot of... of of this, though, in a weird way, that Simpsons episode is more serious <laughs> than a Christmas story is. Yeah, what is it he steals? It's like a video game. It's like the Bone Storm Four or whatever. Yeah, it's a, like essentially like a Mortal Kombat type game that uh-huh. just seems like the greatest thing ever. And they have like the muscled Santa Claus in the commercial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're not going to give a Christmas story the full Weird House Cinema treatment or anything here today, uh, but I do want to just point out real quickly. Uh, a few of the people involved in it, because uh, it's kind of fun. Uh, first of all, it was directed by Bob Clark, who also de- directed the notorious holiday proto-slasher Black Christmas in 1974, which I have never seen, but it, ha- it, had, a, it had a great cast, including uh, Olivia Hussey, Margot Kidder, uh, Kira Dulia from uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and of mm. course, Weird House Cinema uh, favorite John Saxon. Everybody at home, do a push-up for John Saxon right now. (laughs) Uh, He also directed Death Dream, Murder by Decree, which is a Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper story, two Porky's movies, two Baby Geniuses movies. Oh, Porky's and Baby Geniuses? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But but still, there's some good stuff in there. He he passed away in 2007, but I think A Christmas Story is likely to remain his his legacy. Like, this is the one that's going to really stick. Though I guess... Black Christmas also has its place in film history as well. Sure. And uh, as far as the cast, it has a, has a wonderful cast, A uh, Christmas Story. But the, the two main characters worth pointing out for our purposes, the old man is played, played by the always terrific Darren McGavin. Uh, this is the guy who played Kolchak, the Night Stalker. I think he was also in uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, Raw Deal. <laughs> okay. And uh, the mom is played by Melinda Dillon, who was in uh, Harry and the Hendersons, as well as Spontaneous Combustion, uh, which is oh, one of wow. the um, uh, the films that we covered on Weird House Cinema this year. Did she play like the the creepy scientist? She am I right about that? It's really hard to remember. Everybody else just kind of um, uh, grows dim against the, the the burning fire that is uh, uh, that is uh, Dorif's performance in that. Uh, Brad Dorif is just so good. Yeah, I just double checked. She she's the German scientist. I think at some point Brad Dourif goes to her house and she, maybe she catches on fire. I, I don't know. Probably that's probably that's generally how it goes. Um, yeah. But I don't want to sell her short because Melinda Dillon uh, is, is is a great actor as well. She was uh, she was in Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Absence of Malice in 1981. She was nominated for two Academy Awards and one Tony Award. Okay, but we don't want to leave anybody out for the like eight people in the audience who who have never uh, seen this movie or even just seen this sequence in the movie on five times in the same day on Christmas. 
but what's the deal with the major award? Well, it is, as we've been saying, a major award. It is something he has won for his achievements uh, in, in a game. Uh, and, and what is the game, Joe? Well, I, I think it's like it's like a trivia contest, maybe done through the mail from a newspaper. Uh, though I think it's worth saying that uh, he actually does not supply most of the answers on the contest. He has to ask uh, Melinda Dillon, and she actually knows the answers. Then he fills them in and sends it off or something and apparently wins this trivia contest uh, by answering questions like, what is the name of the Lone Ranger's nephew's horse? <laughs> but later in the film, after he receives his major award, when people ask him how uh, what it was for, he says it's for mind power. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's this wonderful design. It is a, a lamp that is shaped like a woman's leg wearing a fishnet stocking with the shade resembling a kind of mini skirt or short hoop dress or something. And um, as we as we learn in the the show, it's it's an item of much controversy in the household, and um, and it's clear that mom does not like this lamp, and certainly does not think it belongs at the front of the house, <laughs> where neighbors can see it. Uh, you know, it's already uh, it's it's becoming a, a topic of discussion in the neighborhood. And then what happens? There is an accident. Uh, somebody is cleaning uh, too close to the lamp, and it is accidentally destroyed. Now, I think one of the great points of humor in the movie is that it is never made clear why a lamp shaped like a sexy leg is the the prize for winning this newspaper contest. Like, the, yeah. there's no connection there. Like, why would this be what you get? Uh, and it, it's just not explained. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't even say anything, uh, you know, on the lamp. It's not like a, an, the award is shaped like a lamp. No, this is just a lamp that's shaped like a, a leg. Um, but but he is he is fond of it. He thinks it is wonderful. She does not. It becomes a uh, it becomes a controversial issue between the two of them. It is destroyed. An attempt to rebuild the leg lamp seems possible, but we'll never know if it was successful. We 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 we, we suspect that it was not. That this is something that once broken can never be repaired. Well, I think also there's a little bit of subtlety there because uh, when the old man is trying to repair it with glue and failing, you sense in him a kind of uh, a kind of waning enthusiasm where it may be, in fact, that he is uh, realizing that his wife was correct in thinking that this lamp is rather tacky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But he didn't want to admit it earlier. Right. <laughs> so this this lamp, uh, this is a, a hilarious part of the, the film. Uh, this is based on the chapter, My Old Man and the Lascivious Special Award that heralded the birth of pop art. Uh, from the 1966 novel In God We Trust All Others Pay Cash. Uh, but it's really taken on a, a life of its own since then. Um, you can now buy uh, like replicas of the lamp, reproductions of the rent lamp in various sizes. You can get Christmas tree ornaments where the Christmas, I mean, you can basically get Christmas tree ornaments of it or even Christmas lights of the lamp. Like the lamp has become like this, um, this weird uh, symbol all its own. I was uh, I was reading about it on uh, Reed uh, Krager's blog, Inventor's Digest, and apparently Shepard was inspired to create this fictional lamp based on uh, knee-high soda ads uh, that he remembered uh, seeing in magazines showing two shapely legs up to the knee. Uh, he remembered these from, from, from when he was a boy. And then for the film, production designer Ruben Freed 
he did the rest. And the, the lamp is apparently protected by two different uh, trademarks. Uh, they've been mass produced over the years. And yes, you can buy them today as functional lamps. Uh, when this movie came out, you could only dream of such a thing. I think they made like what, just a handful of these for the film. But now uh, it is achievable by anyone. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe I read somewhere that the original lamp prop made for the film no longer exists. That is what I was reading as well. Yeah. Lost to history, like so many great works. Like many of the artworks of the Parthenon or uh, (laughs) just uh, the the, the great antiquities, they just fade to time. Well, speaking of antiquities, obviously this this can't be where the story begins and ends, right? There has to be more of it. There has to be more to the, the lamp that is a leg and the leg that is a lamp. By God, if there's not more to it, we'll make more to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's go to the, the obvious place to discuss all of this is to go way back and just talk about lamps in general. Uh, the lamp in the movie is, of course, an electric lamp with origins in the early 19th century. But the history of illumination technology goes way back, obviously. Uh, you, know, you can think to our invention episodes on fire technology. And indeed, the most basic form of illumination technology is, of course, a mere torch or a burning brand of some sort or even uh, a very primitive uh, you know, burning stick. Uh, the, you know, these will all uh, get it done. Uh, but according to Brian M. Fagan and Garrett G. Fagan, um, in the um, uh, in the the seventy great inventions of the ancient world, um, wick burning lamps go back at least as far as the late Paleolithic period. Uh, it's thirty thousand through ten thousand years ago. Uh, all you need is a reservoir of fuel and a wick made from plant fiber or even something like human hair. And Ugh. the fuel itself can be any number of things. It can be you know oil. It can be fat. And sometimes salt was added to oil to keep it from uh, overheating. Uh, Tons of lamps survived from the ancient world, as these were, of course, widespread and extremely useful pieces of technology. Uh, They illuminate your environment. They turn uh, nighttime, well, it doesn't turn nighttime into day, but it it provides some of the illumination that you would have in the daytime uh, in a nice uh, concentrated form. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's useful about a lamp or like a candle, we've talked about this in – core episodes of the show before is that they uh they they provide moderate light for a long period of time they're constructed so as to gradually slowly feed the fuel into the flame rather than have the the fire just burn through the fuel source as fast as it possibly can like it would with you know many other things like a you know a lit stick or something yeah so the technology here uh, the the device itself allows you to make the most out of your limited fuel uh, now, real quick, I want to want to just mention the Fagans uh, quickly. Um, Brian Fagan, of course, Brian M. Fagan is uh, is, uh, is someone I cite a lot on the the show. Um, for starters, the, the that Great Inventions book is super useful, but he's written a number of, of volumes and still has books coming out, including a new book with Nadia Durrani titled "Climate Chaos: Lessons on Survival from Our Ancestors." Now, the other uh, Fagan, though, Garrett G. Fagan, uh, was an Irish-American ancient historian best known for his social histories of Roman bathing and uh, the spectacles of the Roman arena. And I could be wrong on this, but I do not believe these two Fagans are related at all. Uh, They Mm. just happen to work together in this one chapter uh, in uh, the, the 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World that deals with illumination technology. Okay, so lamps go very far back, far into the Paleolithic period. 
Right. And lamp technology of this basic sort can be found from throughout Mesopotamia. And the shape of the reservoir varies. So you could you can use basically found objects as your reservoir. So seashells were often used because these were naturally occurring shallow bowls with ridges to accommodate a wick at one end. But then once you start making artificial reservoirs for your oil or your uh, fat, whatever you're burning, your fuel, um, then you're making them out of pottery or even metal. And this allows for all manner of simple and ornate lamp designs. And you know where we're going with that, right? Oh, of course. (laughs) Yeah, the obvious question is how many of these lamps were shaped like legs? Well, are you going to tell me? Well, this is a difficult question to answer, Joe. (laughs) Uh Uh, Humans have, of course, always loved to craft things in the likeness of animals uh, and or themselves. And animal legs and feet have always been a favorite motif. In fact, uh, Fagan includes an image of one in the book. It's a first century CE brazier from Pompeii with beautiful like animal feet supporting it. And of course, we still see this today with, you know, tubs, uh, anything. It's like, it's, it's like the human artisan can't help it. It's like, why well, have put feet upon this device or this prop or this piece of furniture? Uh, could I not make those feet like actual feet? Uh, and I guess you could even say there's a bit of biomimicry there as well. Like if you're going to support an object with these like stumpy pods, uh, well, maybe make them look like a foot. That's true. In fact, you've got me thinking about how often the legs of, you know, uh, fancier pieces of furniture are kind of shaped to be uh, organic or flesh-like in a way. They might have kind of curves on them similar to a human leg or to an animal leg, Mm -hmm. even if they're not explicitly trying to depict a human or animal leg, like with toes and stuff. Right. Though, of course, there are plenty of explicit depictions out there where it's yeah, just like yeah. it just straight up looks like the foot of a lion or a goat or what have you. So looking around in the history of lamp designs, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure I, I missed something interesting, uh, but I, I've come across two different examples of um, uh, uh, from from uh, from Greek and Roman traditions that are that are pretty interesting, uh, particularly when dealing with uh, the Greek uh, askos and the Greek uh, uh, alabastron. So an askos is an ancient Greek pottery vessel used to pour liquids such as oils. So it is not quite a lamp, though it could have been used to store lamp oil and could have been used to refill lamps. Mm-hmm. And many of these were decorated and decorational, sometimes in the form of animals. And then an alabastron is similar. It's a pot, like a pottery vessel often used for holding oils or perfumes, named for the carved alabaster containers from Egypt that started the design key. And uh, the, the key thing here is that these are generally elongated. So um, they are, just by their very nature, in their sort of generic form, kind of leg-shaped. So you'll find both uh, of these in, in various shapes and forms, and, and they're littered throughout museums and collections around the world. Uh, but I, I was able to find some images of, of, um, of for, for starters, there's a leg-shaped Ascos or Alabastron uh, that is or was in the collection of the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. Uh, though I've had trouble finding out any additional information about it, I might have to ask anyone out there who has, has visited the Royal Ontario Museum or, or can visit it now uh, to go in and try and get me more answers on this. But uh, the image I found is indeed uh, uh, an alabastron, or it appears to be an alabastron. It's hard to figure out what the scale is here. It is mm-hmm. shaped like a, essentially like a naked human leg 
and it's freestanding. It looks like it has, it maybe has sandals drawn on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, yeah, used to hold oil or something. This gives new meaning to the, the expression that uh, someone who can hold their liquor has a, quote, hollow leg. Yes, this is indeed yeah. a hollow leg. I wonder if that, uh, yeah, I, I didn't even think about that, uh, that, that phrase. Um, now, I was able to find more information on another one. There is a, a Greek pottery alabastron in the shape of a grieved or armored leg from uh, Corinth or Rhodes, circa 6th century BCE, and it's part or was part, I'm not sure, of the Kalos collection in London. I uh, included a, an image of this uh, uh, for you to look at as well, Joe. Mm-hmm. So, so this is less decorative, um, and, but also is not a naked leg. It has uh, you know, armor on it. Yeah, this is more like a, an ancient RoboCop leg. Yeah. And the Kalos Collection website uh, shares the following, quote, The Kalos example above is a very rare and fine alabastron that takes the shape of a leg protected by a greave. Dating to the 6th century BC, uh, e, it is an interesting example of a plastic vase from this period. And note the use of the term plastic here. Uh, it's not modern plastic, obviously. This just means that it's molded, and this is derived from the Greek verb plasine, meaning to mold. Mm-hmm. Quote, the grieve is outlined in black slip and tapers toward the ankle area. The foot emerges beneath with carefully incised details for the sandal and toes. Although primarily used as a container, the form of this alabastron as a grieved leg implies that it may also have been used um, at or dedicated to a sanctuary as a votive offering. There is a very similar example of this rare type in uh, the, uh, the, the Museum of Pharmacia in Portugal, and they include an inventory number, and I was able to look it up. It's number uh, 1089 uh, and uh, you get kind of a delightful rear view of this freestanding uh-huh. hollow leg. Uh, okay, so it seems like a bunch of ancient Greeks really uh, pouring stuff out of legs. Yeah. Now, again, these are not lamps. They're merely containers that may have contained lamp oil and may have been used to refill lamps. But we're not done yet. So as okay. the Fagans point out, the Roman period was a time of, of pottery lamp mass production. And lamps of every design were used for not only practical reasons, you know, providing illumination when you need it, but also purely aesthetic reasons and even religious and occult reasons. And that brings us to the next example, the Roman foot lamp. Ooh. I initially found these on the Faraby Keeper blog by Wayne Faraby, a Brooklyn-based writer. And I have to say, this is quite a good, uh, good-looking good blog. Looks like a lot of interesting content on here if anyone wants to check it out. It's farabeekeeper.wordpress.com. Uh, uh, and uh, the, the great thing here is that we're not just talking about one lamp. We're not talking about, oh, well, here's the Roman foot lamp, and we, we, don't, we have no idea why they made this. Instead, we have several different surviving lamps and uh, I've included images for you to look at, Joe. I invite anyone out there to either visit that Faraby website or to, uh, to do Google image searches so you can pull this up for yourself because these are, these are wondrous and, and really strange to look at. They are lamps in the shape of, of a human foot, uh, as the name implies, with, um, with, with, uh, with essentially um, a, a stopper or a lid um, at the aperture where the, the stump of the disembodied foot would be. And then there is another aperture at the big toe. And it is from this that the wick and, and therefore the flame would emerge. Right. So I guess you would hold this by the handle at the back of the foot. So you're holding it like behind the heel. And then you would have the flame sticking out of the big toe at the front. 
Yes, if you were holding it. But then, as we'll discuss, there are some questions regarding exactly what one does with a foot lamp. Um, <laughs> but but I, in looking at it too, it also reminds me a bit of depictions of the the hand of glory, the, the you know the occult item that is supposed to be like the the, the um, uh, disembodied hand of a of a like a, a criminal's corpse that is then transformed in this, into this magical item that burns candlelight from the fingertips and you know has strange energies and effects. Mm-hmm. Except this is not a hand. This is a foot. <laughs> it's not a real foot. foot. Of glory. <laughs> it's a ceramic foot, and uh, um, you know, it's, it's a it's a, a, a foot of pottery, and uh, and yeah, there is this flame that is emitting from either in front of the the toe or from the toe itself. It depends on exactly how uh, how the sculptor uh, or uh, has 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 arranged it. You know. Now, what I would wonder is, is this just like? Because somebody wanted an interesting lamp, and they made lamps that look like looked like all kinds of things. Or would a foot lamp have a particular significance in, say, a, a religious or political context or something? Yeah, and that is that is the the riddle that uh, that that the rest of us are left uh, uh, having to solve. So Farabee points out that the symbols and motifs of the ancient Romans don't always make sense to us today, which I think is a very fair point. And uh, and he he says that the best explanation that he could find were that these were sort of literal footlights placed on the floor or ground, especially at the base of murals, which um, which is interesting. It's, it's still hard to to figure out exactly like what that means. Is it just you know pure novelty? It's like well, it's it's a foot lamp or it's a, it's a lamp that goes on the ground where our feet are. Let's make it in the shape of a foot as well. Well, to call back to The Simpsons, uh, that kind of reminds me of why is there corn on the uh, curtains in the kitchen? Well, I don't know, kitchen, food, corn. <laughs> yeah, or imagine um, a time traveler visiting our current age and finding solar-powered outdoor lights that look like mushrooms. Why do they look like mushrooms? Well, I mean, it basically comes down to they're on the ground where yeah. mushrooms are. Um, so why not make them look like mushrooms? It amuses us. It just makes sense. Yes. But I decided to look into this uh, a little bit deep, deeper, and I looked in a book titled Light and Darkness in Ancient Greek Myth and Religion from 2010. Uh, this has numerous authors on it, but is uh, edited by Christophilus and Levaniuk. And they mention that Roman footlamps were used in incubation rituals, citing a couple of sources as well that I, I tried to, to follow, but I don't think they actually have English translations. Mm. Uh, so incubation rituals or dream incubation rituals involve involved sleeping in sacred places in order to receive dreams or visions. And it seems that copious amounts of lamps were often associated with many of the sites uh, uh, where you would in- engage in incubation rituals, uh, as described in a book by Sandra uh, Blakely titled God's Objects and Ritual Practice. I don't remember what episode it was in the past, but somehow this came up. I think we were talking about uh, ancient rituals for dream incubation, specifically with regard to the Greek god of healing and medicine, Asclepius, where uh, people who were sick and wanted healing would come to the temple of Asclepius and actually sleep in the temple in order to, like, they'd make an offering or do a ritual and they'd sleep in the temple in order to receive a dream from the god as a form of cure for their illness. Yeah, there you go. That would be that would be dream incubation. That's what we're talking about here. But how do these lamps come into play? Uh, <laughs> uh, I found another source that had some wonderful insight here. Uh, and this was a, a 1946... Uh, paper uh, titled Material on the Cult of Serapis by Dorothy Kent Hill. 
And um, I'm going to read uh, a quote from it here, but first I want to uh, run through a couple of things here so that everyone will, will know what, uh, uh, what's being referred to. So first of all, uh, a ureus is a curling snake motif probably best recognized as a symbol of divine authority on the heads of, of, uh, of, of Egyptian sarcophaguses. Uh, so I think everyone's probably seen one of these before, you know, like a, um, like a hooded cobra or a snake uh, that is emerging from a headdress or from the, the head of one of these artistic depictions. Also known as a boss snake. Okay, yeah. And then Serapis uh, was a Greco-Egyptian deity. He was introduced but not necessarily created by Greek pharaoh Ptolemy I Soter as an attempt to unify Greek and Egyptian culture. Uh, specifically, as uh, Geraldine Pinch points out in Egyptian mythology A to Z, he was meant to be a combination of Apis and Osiris and Zeus and Dionysus. Now, Serapis is often depicted with something on his head uh, that might be confused uh, by the casual viewer as maybe something that is also involved in illumination. Like, it looks like you look at images of him, and it kind of looks like you're supposed to put a candle on top of his head. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it doesn't really look like a hat or anything. It just looks like there's some kind of like container or bucket or something attached to his head in in the form that he's in now as a, as a piece of statuary or something. Yeah, so at first I was thinking, well, maybe it's illumination is, is, is involved in more ways than one here. But mm-hmm. as it turns out, Serapis is often depicted with this um, with this thing on his head called a uh, a modius, which is a basket grain measure, a Greek symbol for the land of the dead. Mm. Now, in this text by uh, by Dorothy Kent Hill, um, she includes two images of bronze lamps in the form of human feet, and they're very much like we've de- we've described uh, thus far. Except that there, there's an extra interesting thing about them. So yes, you have the the big toe or or something just beyond the big toe that is clearly designed for the wick to go in and for flame to come out of. There is the um, uh, the larger aperture at the stump of the disembodied foot. But in both of these, you also have a rod that, uh, that's basically going up from the base of the heel. And, uh, and and this is something that uh, that she ends up reflecting on. I should also add at the top of this this rod that's emerging from the base of the heel, uh, we see once once more this ureus uh, symbol. We see the, the the curled snake. Oh yeah, there it is with the hood flared. So this is what uh, what she had to say. Quote: Lamps modeled after parts of the body, especially the foot, were very common in antiquity. Such a lamp might reflect no more than a whimsical mood of a craftsman. But the ureus immediately suggests a connection with the giant detached Serapis feed, recently studied by Dow and Upson. On these monuments, the ureus is usually curled somewhere in the neighborhood of the ankle. Here it coils on a rod which rises at the back of the foot. The space between the top of the foot and the tail of the snake is great enough to accommodate a small bust of Serapis, which would correspond in position to the busts on some of the stone feet. We have observed that something was attached to the cover and may now suggest a bust of the god as the most plausible candidate. If the bust were placed in this position, the Uraeus would appear to loom over the head of the god. Wait a minute. So I feel like I must be understanding this wrong, but does this mean this would be a foot with a head on the on the leg of the foot and then a snake over the head? Yeah, yeah, that's that's what what I am I am to understand here. It's kind of like Here's a foot. Let's put a, or, or maybe we should think in reverse. I have a bust of a, of a god I want to display. Um, 
I want to display it. Uh, I don't want to just lay it on the floor, though. I need something to hold it up. Uh, and also, I need to illuminate it. Well, I need a foot, and I need a foot that emits fire. And, uh, and then, you know, they're able to work the uraeus into it as the, uh, uh, as the rod that is holding the bust above the foot. And there's more, because she writes, quote, The smoke rising before the god from the lamp would create an eerie religious effect. Although Serapis was by no means the only deity honored on lamps, his frequent presence there is evidence for the probability of his guardianship over this bronze foot, referring to the, the, the example that she's talking about in the article. Certainly, however, there are not good grounds for connecting all foot-shaped lamps with the Serapis cult. Interestingly enough, she also speculates, um, she, she, she brings up Psalms uh, 119, the wor- uh, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, um, suggesting that, you know, there are various ways we could interpret a foot-shaped lamp. Um, that in, 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 uh, in, and again, it comes back to the basic question, like how much of this is novelty? How much of it is based in some reference that just has not survived the ages? Or indeed, I mean, I have to say this, this idea of, of the, the, the lamp being used to, um, to illuminate and create like a smoky effect before uh, the, the image of a god. Uh, there, there's something attractive about that. And, and perhaps this idea too, yeah, that it's like, if, well, if I'm going to hold up the face of a god uh, on some sort of a stand, then I need it to be in a foot as well. Like I, 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 there, there's something about the, the compulsion there that is, uh, that's fascinating. Like, would it be wrong to... To, 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 to hold up that bust of Serapis without a foot, without a human foot at the bottom? Would there be something kind of blasphemous about that? I wonder. Well, it's funny how the idea of a pedestal is derived from ped, like foot, but in this case, it's literally a foot. Yeah. And this is, this is interesting, too, to think of in comparison to a Christmas story. Because obviously, with a Christmas story, part of the whole deal with the lamp is that it is objectification of the female form. It's the idea of, like, here is just the leg of a woman that is sexy, um, mm. you know, uh, without taking into account uh, the rest of her as a physical whole being and, of course, as a person. Um, in this, it almost seems like we have the reverse, where it's like, well, if we're going to have something else attached to this piece of a god, we need it to also be a physical piece of said god, perhaps. Okay, I'm going with you. Now, realistically, I think that's about all that connects this, uh, <laughs> these ancient foot lamps with a Christmas story. You know, probably no more than to say making objects, including lamps that look like feet or legs, is just the sort of thing that human artisans might do. Mm-hmm. But I think if we were to be unrealistic about the connection, we could we could wonder that perhaps what has happened here is the old man has has entered into the worship of an ancient Greco-Egyptian god and wishes to bring the city of Cleveland under his domain. <laughs> his wife, however, clearly she serves the god Osiris, who uh, uh-huh. Serapis uh, you know partially replaces or is uh, or is introduced to replace, and so she brings about the lamp's destruction in a campaign to keep Cleveland under the sway of the green-skinned god. Yeah, I think there's also some underworld stuff you can do with him yeah, going into yeah. the basement to fight the furnace. Uh, that seems to connect maybe somehow. Ooh, but you know, we also have to think about the fact that, okay, if, if, if the god Serapis is also still Osiris in, to, some, to, to some extent, I mean, part of the whole myth of Osiris is that his body is dismembered. Uh, you know, that's part of the whole, uh, you know, Osiris myth cycle. It's about his death and resurrection. And of course, we see the lamp broken into pieces as well and an attempt, a failed attempt to resurrect it. That, that's very good. Kudos, kudos to you, Rob. Oh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just interpreting the, you know, the work of the gods here. 
I'm just a messenger. Yes. Now, on the subject of tenuous connections to ancient art, uh, I wanted to talk about leg sculpture a little bit more broadly uh, and at the risk of getting sappy. I, I also just have to say that the idea of sculpture of the human form as a lamp uh, got me thinking about a line in one of my favorite poems. I'm sure this is one I've brought up on the show before. I, I don't remember when, but it's the poem, uh, The Archaic Torso of Apollo by Rainer Maria Rilke. I'm sure I've read this one at you before, Rob. Haven't oh, I? Well, let's see. Read a little bit and I'll see if uh, it rings a bell. Okay, well, so this is the English translation by Stephen Mitchell. I, I can't read the whole poem, but uh, but it's worth looking up. The Archaic Torso of Apollo. It's an a- excellent poem. Uh, but Stephen Mitchell translation begins, We cannot know his legendary head with eyes like ripening fruit, and yet his torso is still suffused with brilliance from inside, like a lamp in mm. which his gaze, now turned low, gleams in all its power. All right, all right. Uh, from here, he goes on to describe this uh, the kind of strange life flowing through this uh, this dismembered uh, uh, sculpture from from ancient Greece, and it ends with a line that's uh, pretty famous in in this uh, translation. It says, "For here, there is no place that does not see you. You must change your life." So it's about Rilke's experience of looking at this. Uh, fragment of an an ancient sculpture of the human form that he, he sees I think he sees it in the Louvre one day and uh and having this profound uh kind of stirring and even frightening human connection with it now the word that appears as lamp in this english uh version i think i've seen translated as candelabrum in others mm-hmm. but in any case, I like this because the line in the poem seems to be confessing the power of great sculpture to suggest that there's something more than just mimicry of the shape of a human in great sculpture. It's not just that great sculpture gets the the outline and the form and the contours of a human right. It's that in great sculpture, something actually seems to be alive inside it, almost perceptibly moving or lighting up. Mm. And I think this is the case for Rilke, even though the sculpture he's looking at has arrived in the modern world in a totally degraded form. Uh, he mentions that it has no head. He calls it a torso. So I looked it up, and I think the actual artwork that he's talking about here is usually understood to be an artifact in the collection of the Louvre called the Kouros of Miletus, or the, the Torso of Miletus. So it is the torso of this nude male figure that's a, a, a very common uh, form of sculpture in, in archaic Greek art uh, known as the Kouros. And this one was excavated from the remains of Miletus. It is missing its head. It's missing both arms. It's missing one leg up to the upper thigh and the other leg from above the knee. Rob, I've got an image from a couple of angles for you to look at just down below here. Yeah, it is quite, it's quite striking. Yeah, the, the, the lifelike um, uh, muscle definition on this torso. I agree. Even though it's like missing most of the parts of the body, there's still something a little bit haunting about it. I know what uh, Rilke is talking about because I, I see a kind of hint of that that light or animating life force in it, though in a in a muted or half-formed way, which I think is the ambiguity that makes this sculpture an interesting subject for poetry. It's it's what we we can't fully see or know about it that makes it uh, unsettling and and something kind of rings within our chest when we look at it. And I think that's the thing also that leads Rilke to say, you must change your life. 
but but this leads me to to uh, the fuller observation I wanted to make connecting the leg lamp to art history, <laughs> which is that I think you could make a pretty good case that when it comes to sculpture of the human form, the legs are the life. Mm, okay. Now, why would I say that? Here's the case I want to make. Uh, one thing that's interesting about this uh, sculpture, the the Kouros of Miletus, is that it seems to come from a period of transition in, in ancient Greek art, when Greek art was moving from what modern art historians call the archaic period into what we now call the classical period. And this transition was sometime in the 5th century BCE. That seemed to be roughly the turning point. Uh, and so, Rob, to illustrate, I, I want to l- let you look at a couple of statues of the human form, both from ancient Greece. And so, there's going to be one here you can look at on the left that's typical of the archaic style, and one on the right that's typical of the classical style. Uh, these are both images I found on the website of the Met Museum, so both things in the collection there. But to describe them from you out there listening at home, the older statue, I would say, is very rigid with very straight upright posture. It is looking straight forward at you with uh, very square shoulders and the head is pointed straight towards you. So it's it's very just an aligned body. In fact, I would say that in a lot of ways, it looks similar to sculpture from ancient Egypt. Yeah, it, it has a, a very two-dimensional kind of appearance to it. It's forward-facing. Um, it does not, even though it, it is itself a three-dimensional object, it is not really like owning that three-dimensional space. Right. And I want to be clear as I go ahead that I would say for my part, I, I think both of these styles are beautiful, both striking in their own way. I certainly would not say that I think one is somehow better than the other, but there is a difference. So when you look at the second kind, the sculptures that are typical of the classical style beginning in the 5th century BCE, a good example of this, if you want to look it up at home, one is called the uh, Doriphoros or the Spear Bearer by the mm-hmm. ancient Greek sculptor uh, Polykleitos, P-O-L-Y-K-L-E-I-T-O-S. And these classical ones are very different in that they have, I would say, this powerful lifelike quality uh, that we see developing in this period. It, it looks it looks like there is something alive and even moving inside this this totally still hunk of dead rock. Yeah, and I think if you've ever you know, visited a sculpture garden, gotten or and or gotten to, to to see some of these classical works or reproductions of these classical works, you know exactly what we're talking about. You know, it's that that feeling that this is this is life that was captured uh, and frozen. You know that. Uh, uh, you, you look at at one of these statues, and it it, it looks as if it, it had just moved, and it wasn't even necessarily posing for the artist, you know? Yeah, that's a great comparison. They often, the classical sculptures look as if, you know, you're a fly on the wall, and you have just frozen time in the middle of a scene, and, and, and this is what was happening while, say, you know, the discus thrower was, was winding up to throw, or somebody was leaning back to regard someone who had just entered the room. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. like the spear bear here, he's kind of has the pose like, oh, are you sculpting me? I'm sorry, I was just standing here naked. Yeah. <laughs> So the question is, what makes the difference? How do you go? Again, I, I think both styles are wonderful, but what makes the difference from this style that is striking as artwork but doesn't look lifelike to this kind of the classical period that almost you, you, it feels like it has a pulse? You know, it looks like there's something just about to move. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are a number of changes in artistic technique, and uh, I fully admit there, there's a, a lot about classical art that I, I don't know or understand, but. 
I, I am to understand that one of the most significant developments here is a change in the approach to the depictions of legs, hips, and posture, mm. which would come to be known by later artists and scholars as contraposto. Uh, so uh, I was trying to find a succinct definition of this. I found one on a website for the National Galleries of Scotland. Uh, so this museum describes contraposto as, quote, a standing human figure carrying its weight on one leg so that the opposite hip rises to produce a relaxed curve in the body. Now, I, I hope when I say that you can kind of picture, you realize like, oh, yes, I have seen statues like this where the figure being shown has all of their weight shifted to their back leg and their other leg is kind of lifted and bent. And this sort of causes a, a shift, uh, a corresponding shift in the position of the hips and then also causes a kind of twist in the spine where it looks like the character has been caught in the middle of turning or leaning or, or relaxing or something. And the result is this, this powerful striking quality of life caught in the middle of motion. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is in contrast to the, the posture that would have been common for standing sculptures of the human form in Greek art of the period just before this, the archaic period, where again, the kouros, the, the nude male figure, would usually have a rigid, straight posture with weight equally distributed on both legs. Uh, and for again, for some reason, while I think that is artistically beautiful, it doesn't look alive. Something happens when you twist the form like that. The adjustment of the legs so that the weight is on one leg and not the other, it almost seems to, to peel back this opening in the shroud that separates animate from inanimate. You, you shift the weight across the legs and the twist the hips and the spine accordingly and something just happens. Stone can become flesh and sculpture can sort of it, – it can start to have that glow, that unsettling quality of movement or soul. I don't think I'd really thought about this much before, but yeah, absolutely. You look at uh... – you look at these uh, these statues, the ones that are the most lifelike, and you do see this kind of, uh, you know, the, the, it's it's in the legs uh, often. It's it's how the the weight is distributed. I mean, really, one of the most iconic examples of this would probably be Michelangelo's David. Um, oh yeah, where, where if you you look look at the legs, and it's exactly what we're talking about here. Well, yes, I think actually, uh, again, I, I admit I, I don't know a ton about art history, but I think that this is something that was consciously sort of noticed and then recreated on purpose by Renaissance artists looking ah. back to, to mm -hmm. classical art. Like they, they sort of noticed this about the legs and the posture and said like, oh, hey, you know, let's, the let's do like that and, yeah. and even kick it, up, kick it up a notch from there because I think the Renaissance artists – took it a step further where, where there would be sort of like a double twist in the body. Like you see on the David where the, the you know, the legs are, the legs have the lower body's weight shifted one way and then the upper body's kind of, kind of shifting back even in the other direction. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at a, a photo of it right now and yeah, absolutely. So there's my case. The legs are the life. It makes me want to go and, uh, and and visit a museum with a number of sculptures. Like go to the Met and start looking at the legs more because often there's the, the legs are not the 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 obvious focal point of the statue. Instead, you're drawn mm -hmm. to um, well, you're drawn to like the chest or your or, or certainly with the nude statues, you might you know notice what is there or isn't there uh, concerning the groin. Oftentimes, they have a weapon or they're holding like the head of a Medusa or they're <laughs> right. fighting a centaur. There's generally a lot going on. It's easy to miss the legs and not think about these things, but. 
but now that it's been pointed out to me, like I, I want to, I want to go, I want to look at the, the legs of some statues and see, see to, to what extent their, uh, their uh, you know, their life is brought about by this effect. Yeah, totally. Once you notice it, you kind of can't unsee it. Yeah. So, uh, I, to conclude, I guess you must change your life. <laughs> and uh, and how would you connect all of this to a Christmas story and the the major reward? Well, I told you it was going to be tenuous, but okay, you know, <laughs> leg sculpture, right? Uh, yeah. the, the, that's what I got. All right. Uh, now, obviously, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Do you, do you have additional insights on the history of lamps that look like legs or feet or the history of, uh, of sculpture and, um, and, and, and artifice depicting uh, legs and feet? Uh, certainly write in because we would love to hear from you. Also, just additional thoughts on the deep occult uh, secrets that are hidden within uh, the film, A Christmas Story. Are you going to fall asleep with it playing to incubate a dream that Ooh, will uh, yeah. bring you a gift from the gods? It is a film with multiple like dream and vision sequences in it, so it would be yeah. kind of perfect for that. All right. Uh, like we said, this uh, this will probably be the last uh, new episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind for the year, but we'll be back in January with all new episodes uh, we're gonna we're gonna be exci- I'm excited to see what kind of uh, topics we end up discussing. We have a, a whole list of potential topics, stuff we've thought up, stuff that uh, that you have submitted to us. So we have we have plenty plenty of material to draw from, and uh, we're looking forward to it. Uh, in the meantime, uh, you can find all of our episodes in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Core episodes of the show on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Listener mail on Mondays. Short form artifact on Wednesdays, and on Fridays we. We do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most practical and serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 